and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, go to thedispatch.com to check out all our free stuff, including our great series, ongoing series about what a Biden agenda might look like, as well as all our great newsletters, and maybe even to become a paid member of the Dispatch community. Um, so, uh, let's see. I started out this morning in... Where was I? Sioux Falls um, at uh, a hotel I picked specifically because I had a restaurant because we were going to get there late. And it turned out there was no restaurant. So I was vexed because I had to feed my child. Um, anyway, and then this morning we got up pretty early and I drove from Sioux Falls to Chicago. We started out on Tuesday in the San Juan Islands and spent the first night in Spokane, second night in Billings, third night Sioux Falls. Fourth night tonight, Chicago. Uh, be home tomorrow, knock on wood. Um, and uh, I feel like a little bit of a failure because the Goldberg family best time is basically three nights um, uh, and well, three and a half days to do this, this, this drive. But between the work stuff that I had to do, um, the stuff that my daughter had to do, um, and the... And shockingly, how much more difficult it is to wake up a 17-year-old girl um, than it is a one-year-old girl, which is when we usually made our best time. Uh, I'll take uh, four and a half days instead. So uh, where to begin? I'm going to keep this kind of short because literally I just got into my hotel about a half hour ago. And there are, um, there are various cold beverages that are waiting for me. But I feel so guilty. This is the first... This year is the first year that I have skipped um, two columns and like three G files. I mean, I, and, and like this is such a breaking of my work ethic and I feel like it's incredibly bad luck. And since the gym was open in this hotel, um, my daughter went down there and I figured I should at least do, do this. Um, hopefully next week everything gets back relatively to normal um, and I can get my... Um, work schedule right. Um, and I know I've talked about this before, but there's a certain superstition that comes in my line of work about not missing work. And uh, you just kind of lose your muscle memory a little bit. And it's, it can, you know, th this is sort of my idea of what writer's block is, is, is that it does, writer's block doesn't exist, but fear of writer's block does. And the way you can get that fear is by getting out of practice even a little bit. Um, anyway, so uh, last night was the final night of the convention, or whatever we call those things. I mean, I, I guess we call them conventions. And as I pointed out on the Dispatch podcast the other day, um, you know, it's funny. The, the word convention was one of the last vestigial things about the conventions that still obtained in terms of its role from the you know, 18th and 19th century. Convention means literally a place where people are convened. And for the most part, neither of these conventions were actually places where people convened. And I mean, I know people showed up at the White House, uh, which, uh, you know, but that was, that sort of proves the point. I wrote a column about this, you know, but that sort of proves the point. This was a, uh, this, 
this wasn't so much the transformation of the conventions into infomercials. It was the final reveal that they've been infomercials for a very long time because the studio audiences are basically meat props um, or, you know, they're, they're there to deliver applause and claps and uh, laughs and cheers and all of that. They're not actually there to do any of the functions that conventions were conceived of. And the thing that bothers me about this, I, I, got, some, I got some blowback um, from my column at the dispatch today from you know people and also from email and on Twitter from people who were like, well, they've always been bogus anyway. What's the big deal? And not to repeat the stuff I was saying on the Dispatch podcast, but I, I do think that people fail to grasp how, you know, how much the this these conventions really have shown that the parties aren't parties in the traditional sense anymore. Um, they're lifestyle groups. They're um, associational brands. Um, they might as well be, I mean, they're, they're much closer to sports teams in a lot of ways because, you know, it's not like, you know, it's not like uh, Redskins fans or Cowboy fans actually play the game or do anything to actually support the game other than buy tickets and whatnot um, and maybe buy some swag. Uh, the conventions really are sort of... Um, you know, they're like they're, they're more like Star Trek conventions, I guess, where you you know you don't actually have any effect on the actual product line, uh, but you help uh, test market, um, you know, new new storylines or whatever, and it's a way to to do fan service for your biggest customers more than anything else, and that's what the conventions have been for a while, which is why I'm so you know I, I disagree so much with Sarah about the role of platforms. Again, I agree the platforms haven't really mattered in a profound sense in a long time, but you know, the, the, the two main architects of American parties really are James Madison and Martin Van Buren of all people. And, um, uh, and, you know, and I don't just mean because Martin Van Buren was the inspiration for the Van Buren boys in Seinfeld. Um, Van Buren was the president during the era of good feelings when uh, the country didn't have a lot of good feelings and it wasn't really an era. Uh, but the reason it was called that is that there was basically only one party in the country briefly. And this was supposed to be a, this was spun as a sign of national unity and cohesion. And it was Van Buren who realized that, um, it doesn't work, that you actually need another party to focus the mind of your own party, that you need some oppositional team some oppositional program to help you hone your own arguments, to hone your own agenda. Otherwise, it's it's like running government is a little bit like herding cats. And before that, there was James Madison, who originally didn't like parties. And, you know, and as I often point out, um, Madison was a much better philosopher than Hamilton, uh, but a much worse rapper. And what what Madison came when Madison came around to parties is what he what he really understood was that that the the role of the parties was to get buy-in across coalitions where different members of the parties, uh, different members of a coalition made some sacrifices of their ideal position, um, took like 70% of a loaf in order to get a chance of getting that 70% actually enacted, right? 
um, because you could see how different agricultural interests would have different interests. I mean, I don't know what the needs of wheat farmers are vis-a-vis cotton farmers, but presumably at the margins, they have different interests. Uh, but those different interests are subsumed by their larger common interests in terms of the needs of agriculture and trade and all the rest. And so what different members of a coalition would do is make some marginal sacrifices in the name of uh, greater benefits on the whole. And that was part of the process of parties, was to get uh, large coalitions to cohere and hone their arguments about what their agendas should be. And uh, the, the platform writing part of the parties, you know, sometimes in the 18th and 19th century, it's hugely, I shouldn't say 18th century, sometimes in the 19th century, hugely important, even in the 20th century, hugely important. Um, they helped really define what the coalitions were going to be in terms of, you know, the platform, you know, the early Republican Party, you know, platform against slavery was the reason Ohio is a party. The temperance movement in the, um, at the beginning of the 20th century was really what, um, you know, defined big chunks of, of sort of party loyalty on one side or the other in ways that are sort of hard for us to grasp today. Uh, and you can go through civil rights, you can go through all sorts of things. There are these times where the platform fights really matter um, in terms of providing discipline, but that's not what I'm talking about. What what I'm just talking about is that just as an institution, getting people who care deeply about sometimes even minor issues um, in the grand scheme of things, but are major issues for them to negotiate, to debate, uh, to refine their arguments internally within a party, that has a real advantage. That has, that has real benefits. You know, as Yuval Levin always likes to say, institutions don't form just simply for people to get together. They're supposed to do something. And the, the role of the platform was to help Republicans or Democrats figure out how to have a somewhat coherent intellectual program where they could reconcile at least superficially and sometimes fundamentally or profoundly the inconsistencies between their positions. And I think that that was a useful process. And this idea of just simply throwing away the platform, and it, you know, it may come back, but you know, let's face it, the parties are shells of what they once were. Um, uh, but the decision to get rid of the parties, I mean, get rid of the platform for the Republican Party combined with this COVID-induced sham wow commercial format um, really just sort of, um, I think, signaled how, how desiccated and pathetic um, our party system is. And so I know people have heard me talk about that a lot, so I'll get off of that. But I think it's relevant to some of the programming coming out of the Republican convention. Again, uh, I assume similar themes could be applied to the Democratic convention. I just missed it because I was um, in Alaska away from television sets um, or internet. Uh, but there is this weird, you know, I mean, uh, just incoherence. And I, I, this is not a Trump criticism per se, um, although I will just, you know, put it out there. I was appalled at the way he used the White House. It's appalled the way he did a lot of these things in this convention. Um, I think it is something that we will look back upon with grave regret um, in the years or decades ahead. Um, but 
either you agree with that or you don't. And I, I doubt anybody who disagrees with it is all that eager to be for me to try to persuade them. Um, all I'll say is that, you know, good luck complaining about political abuses um, of public resources uh, under the next Democratic administration. Uh, you'll get laughed out of the room for being a hypocrite if you didn't criticize this stuff. But uh, that's a tactical point. The real point, you know, the real criticism is just wrong to do. Uh, you know, the it's just, it's a further descent into the norm violations and the pretense that the, the democratic order um, has no, no neutral superstructure, no rules of the game that apply to everybody alike. It's just whatever you can get away with. And I, I find it truly disgusting. But anyway, um, the point I wanted to make was that the, there's all sorts of weird, there was all sorts of weird stuff going through the Republican convention. Uh, you have, you know, these, these, not just over different nights, but on the same nights, these multiple contradictory arguments and themes. You know, one of them is that Joe Biden, you know, passed, you know, pushed through the crime bill, which was this racist thing that put blacks in jail disproportionately and persecuted and prosecuted the drug war and um, was draconian and unjust. And all of that. And uh, and then another theme is that BLM is going to take over everything if Joe Biden is elected and they're going to like rummage through your sock drawer and uh, have and get fingerprints all over your record collection or something. Um, and at the same time, Trump is, you know, and his, and his subalterns and spinners are making a case about how tough they are about, I don't know, uh, Tearing down statues, 10-year federal prison sentence for tearing down statues. But then they're bragging, uh, and sometimes quite movingly, about uh, releasing, about pardoning drug offenders, um, you know, and drug dealers, and uh, emptying out the prisons of, of disproportionately black people. And I'm, I'm, I'm not taking a side on the, the, the policy stuff here so much. I just think that these things are in tension. You know, you have Rand Paul doing his anti-neocon shtick. You have Tom Cotton, you know, you're not supposed to call him a neocon, but, you know, uh, he's a hawk, bragging about the hawkishness. You have them talking about how he's getting us out of wars, but you also talk about talking about uh, bragging about his confrontations with Iran and taking out terrorists and all these kinds of things. And I'm not saying that these things can't be reconciled at some high level of abstraction or with some, or even some granular specificity depending upon the specific thing. But as a general proposition, if you're just talking about marketing and branding, which is basically all these freaking infomercials are anyway, it is really weird how you have these discordant um, themes just coming, you know, coming one way and another way, supposedly for the same convention and the same party. Um, and I think, you know, uh, and for the same president. And, and, uh, you know, another one would be this thing about how Democrats want to shut down everything and shut down the economy, but Donald Trump, you know, bravely shut down the economy in March. Um, uh, you know, there's just all of these things that just run across currents with each other. And, you know, uh, if I had more respect for the digital operation, my suspicion would be 
what they're going to do is take these, take all of this mishmash, cut them up into digestible little clips, and send, and then micro-target the stuff that some voters want to hear and send those clips to them and send the other car clips to the stuff that those voters want to hear um, because no one was actually tuning in for all four nights of the uh, of either convention except for hardcore partisans who are already persuaded one way or the other and hardcore political nerds who um, are immune to all this stuff anyway. And, um, and so it could be, you know, it, there's part of me that wants to think it's a brilliant bit of uh, digital strategy going on here. Um, but I just don't know. I mean, the, I mean, it's, it's one of these reasons why uh, congressional hearings suck so badly. Uh, like, uh, Char- I remember Charlie Cook making this point um, on the NR podcast a couple of weeks ago, the, or maybe it was a month ago. I don't know. I'm old and it's just, things have been going crazy. Uh, but, you know, the Bill Barr hearings, whether you are pro-Barr or anti-Barr, were a, just a scandal. They were dysfunctional, dumb, a waste of everybody's time. And um, and if I were, you know, there are days where I'm, I'm sort of half tempted to be a Barr defender. There are other days where I'm very critical of Barr. Um, but... Uh, but not necessarily for the reasons why, say, MSNBC is. Um, I More because I think he makes it easy for MSNBC to be critical of him, which is just a bad look for an attorney general. But regardless, it, whether you're pro-bar or anti-bar or somewhere in between, you still should have been pissed off about that hearing because each congressman just asked you know, I don't want to say every single one, but a lot of them asked the same questions that somebody else had just asked three minutes ago. And not only did they ask the same question, they pretended while mugging for the camera that they were the first person to ask it and that they were driven by passion and grave concern for society and blah, 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 blah. And then they wouldn't let Barr actually answer the question because all they needed was the little clip of them asking in high dudgeon the question, and that's what they would mail to their constituents. And because their constituents weren't watching, they didn't care that if the political that the political nerds caught that this was all theater. Um, it just worked for them. And the same thing happened with Republicans, who would rather than just like let Barr, you know, I, and if I had been one of the Republicans and I sincerely cared about what the answers to some of those questions were, I would have said you know, Attorney General, you've been asked the same question by the Democrats nine times. Uh, they're all pretending to be outraged, but they won't let you answer the question. So you can have the rest of my time to answer the question. That's how like basic oversight stuff should work, particularly if you're using the right. I mean, it's it's not it's one thing to say to do to screw up basic oversight and to be self interested and asinine um, in a hearing about I don't know. Uh, the correct circumference of cucumbers being shipped to the EU or something, right? I mean, who really cares? But if you're using the rhetoric of saying that democracy is at stake, that the rule of law is at stake, and then you're not actually interested in getting answers to your questions and having your concerns mollified, 
then you're just a, a demagogue. And I think both parties were guilty of that. Anyway, the only reason it comes to mind is that that's basically, that's my suspicion about part of what's going on with the GOP and the convention is that they just wanted, you know, to, it's, it's sort of a, it's a, it's a digital version of that. Since nobody was really tuning in, they just now have all these scripts and scraps like some fabric company um, and they can just take what they need and send it to who they think will respond to it, even though the messages are utterly contradictory. And, you know, interestingly, it just, it comes to mind. I remember Seymour Martin Lipset talking about this, you know, FDR was famous for doing this kind of thing to hold his coalition together, where he would have one visit, one delegation after a number come to the Oval Office and one delegation would be the cat delegation. And they would be like, we need more cats in this country. Um, we need little stations with uh, herring and sardines distributed across the nation and bowl, saucers of milk everywhere. And FDR would say, um, gentlemen, I cannot, I should probably say, ladies, um, I cannot tell you how emphatically I agree with you. Um, I will take all funding from dog legislation and provide it for cat legislation. I am 100% your man in Washington. And then the dog delegation would come in and he would do the opposite and talk about how well, milk bones have to be given out to everybody and um, laws, uh, you know, uh, policing or regulating the licking of your own nethers for quadrupeds um, had to be rescinded. And he would do the whole thing in reverse and everyone would leave thinking FDR was their guy. And that makes a lot of sense in a party that was, um, you know, the home of Southern racist Democrats Klansmen, as well as communist Jews and hardcore progressive blacks and 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 immigrants and nativists and all that kind of thing, uh, in that kind of coalition, it kind of you can kind of see how that would work. What just kind of bums me out is that on the Republican side, the Republican Party is supposed to be the um, repository of conservatism, and um, conservatism isn't supposed to be purely coalitional about the interests of, um, of different members of your coalition. It's not supposed to be popular front. Um, and I've been meaning to write, again, you know, the caveat for all of these things is that if I talk about this on this podcast, since it's free association, I am not therefore barred from writing about it later. Some people complain to me about how, oh, you talk about it on your podcast, why are you writing a column about it? And it's like, well, first of all, you know what, I have, uh, I don't know, 50,000 listeners for each podcast, something like that. I haven't checked the numbers lately. Um, and I'm in a, a lot of newspapers, and I, I only have so many ideas that come into my head in any week. And if I think it's interesting, I'm kind of storyboarding it here for you guys. Um, but I just, you know, that can't preclude me from exploring it further and writing. Anyway, about popular fronts, a friend of mine was pointing out the other day, uh, that, you know, one of the problems with intersectionality is that, uh, you know, this left-wing hierarchy of victimology um, is that it creates real political problems f for the left in ways that I think the right doesn't appreciate. The right has this, particularly these days, has, I think, this really childish hegemonic view of the left. I mean, the idea that these jackwad Antifa guys are harassing people in Adams Morgan um, 
uh, at Adam Morgan restaurants for Joe Biden, I just think is 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 lunacy. Um, but you hear that argument from all over the place. You know, that seemed to be the upshot of a lot of stuff I hear on primetime Fox these days. Uh, it's certainly all over Twitter. And it just it makes no sense. And I don't want to get back into all of that here. But, you know, a bunch of hardcore Maoist left wingers harassing a bunch of progressive liberal patrons in a liberal neighborhood in Washington, D.C., um, in order to heighten the contradictions for the benefit of Joe Biden or the Democrats is wrong on so many levels, it's really hard to, um, to elucidate. And this, so this idea that the, many on the right have of the left being this hegemonic, monolithic thing, I think is just wrong. But that doesn't mean there aren't forces within the left that are trying to homogenize, that are trying to impose hegemony. And I think the most significant one is intersectionality. And the problem with intersectionality is, you know, you're not allowed that if you rank lower, or this could be confusing, if, if you're not as important in the hierarchy of victimology, you are not allowed to criticize those of you who are higher ranking victims. And like if, if I were a, uh, this is a point a friend of mine made, if I were a serious sort of Greenpeace climate change, uh, you know, wind power for everybody. What was it Neil says in the young ones? Vegetable rights and peace, kind of white liberal uh, Democrat professional. Uh, I'd be sorely tempted to be screaming bloody murder at the rioters, the looters, um, uh, some of the more extreme BLM and Antifa spokespeople and just saying, guys, cool it. You're actually hurting our chances of taking back the White House here. The problem is you're not allowed to criticize uh, these people to the intersectional left of you. And uh, that's the problem with popular front politics and always has been. And, you know, the point I would add to it, which I pointed out to my friend, is that the right has the same problem these days. Uh, you know, the, pop, the popular front attitude, you know, which comes from the old, commun you know, the old communist days is that you have no enemies to your left. That was the phrase. Il n'est pas enemy de gauche or something like that. I'm sure I'm butchering that. Um, and, uh, but there's also a no enemies to the right attitude. It's, I don't think it's as pervasive on the right as it is on the left, but um, it is one of the reasons why you have all these vulnerable senators these days. You know, it is not in Susan Collins's interest to be associated with, uh, you know, Stephen Miller or Stephen Bannon or uh, or Donald Trump's craziest statements or most offensive statements. But uh, she she can't afford to get crosswise with the part of the base that demands utter lockstep agreement with Trump and Trumpism. And the same thing applies all over the place. I mean, one of the reasons why I'm so hated by so many people these days isn't because I've changed my position on the size of government or taxes or trade or any of this kind of stuff. It's that um, I'm not being a good team player. And that's a popular front attitude masquerading often on the right as some sort of deep philosophical argument when really all it is is, shh, you're not supposed to criticize our team. Um, and... The thing, just to tie it back to where we started with the, or I don't even know if we started there because I'm, I'm yammering. Um, 
to tie it back to the platform stuff, you know, platforms and conventions, these were one of these places where you actually forced the sort of lockstep bullshit of popular front thinking um, into productive debates and arguments. You know, it was a place where you forced different members of the coalition to make compromises with each other, to see each other as not necessarily as friends, but as, as colleagues in a common effort of some kind. And one of the other great benefits of, of the sort of platform process and the agenda crafting process that was traditionally done by parties is that sometimes you just had to say, you know, this far and no farther. Uh, these people can't have a seat at our table because we too fundamentally disagree about some things. And, um, you know, and so whether it was the John Birchers or whoever, you just be able, you, you had this ability to say, you know, these people are included, even though there are lots of disagreement, disagreements, but these people just aren't with us. And, um, that's gone, right? And it's not just gone. I mean, look, again, the, 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 the death of platforms and the death of parties, these are lagging indicators, not leading, leading indicators at this point, at least in this moment, but they're instructive and symbolic. Uh, and I think one of the reasons why that stuff is gone in, the, in this immediate moment is that Donald Trump has never had a majority coalition. And he therefore because he has a minority coalition that got 46%. You know, I, I think Mitt Romney got more votes than, than Donald Trump did in places like Wisconsin, or maybe overall, I can't remember. But, you know, this idea that Trump crafted together this amazing majority coalition of real Americans with a silent majority is all BS. He has a loud minority that because Hillary Clinton was such a sort of horrible candidate uh, that managed to pick the lock of the Electoral College. My point is, is that when you have a minority coalition, you have this sort of existential panic about losing members of your coalition. And, you know, Trump has, you know, basically made peace with this idea that he has lost the so-called never-Trumpers and all the people who um, don't like him. And he's probably right, right? I mean, those people are not persuadable. Um, uh you know, there's not, there's, at this point, there's literally nothing Trump could say or do that would get me to vote for him. Um, doesn't mean I'm voting for Biden. It just, I have his number and I don't find any of the arguments for him by these people who say, well, you know, at the convention, the people who say, you know, well, in private, he's actually a nice guy. Uh, you know, that ship has sailed for me. And if you think he's a nice guy or if you think he's a man of good character, I don't know why you're still listening to this podcast. But um, my point is, is that, you know, in the old days, the part, the, the, the sort of the heavy work of crafting an intellectually coherent uh, philosophical ideological program necessitated at times cutting some people loose. Uh, you know, and that's not just true of platforms. It's also true of magazines like National Review, where, you know, Bill Buckley would write out certain people out of the conservative movement and just say, look, there's just the Venn diagrams don't overlap enough for us to have these people around. And sometimes it was purely for intellectual reasons, and sometimes it was because they were just bad people. 
But, you know, one of the reasons, my point is, one of the reasons why Donald Trump just cannot bring himself to disparage QAnon is that uh, he thinks they're part of his coalition and that he needs them. And when you have, when your whole strategy is based on recobbling together a minority coalition, coalition to pick the electoral college, there's some legitimacy to it. I do think that if uh, he wasn't such a narcissist, he would be more inclined to see this a little differently. But, you know, you, the one way you can sort of garner support from Trump is to praise him, um, which is one of the saddest things about the GOP convention this week was watching so many people, um, particularly his own children, uh, address the president directly as if the TV, the only relevant audience was was Trump himself. Um, I just, you know, it's one thing for desperate politicians to do that. Um, it's really kind of weird when your own children do that. Uh, so anyway, um, I think I'm going to wrap it now because cocktail time calls. Um, I, I really am grateful for your indulgence um, over the last month. And I'll tell you some more crazy stories about all of it. Uh, later, um, I had some actual epiphanies. Um, and, uh, um, and thanks for sticking with us through all of this. I, I just, I, I cannot emphasize enough. Things are going to get so much uglier before they get better. Um, you can just, you can just feel it out there. Uh, you know, I, mean, I, I, you know, and I'm still easing back into the, all the Twitter stuff. And, you know, the other night, Hugh Hewitt had a tweet saying, um, what was it? Uh, even Democrat, when when Don when Don Jr. was uh, talking or shouting, um, he uh, had this line about how Biden was the Loch Ness monster of the swamp. And I'll admit, I don't find you know a Trump uh, accusing others of being swamp creatures to be um, at all sort of amusing at this point, given how swampy this administration was. But I also just thought it was sort of a bad line. I mean, I, I, I don't even think it was a bad line. I just didn't think it was as good a line as Hugh thought it was. He was like, you know, even Democrats had to chuckle at that line about Biden being the Loch Ness monster of the swamp. And um, and I, I pointed out, I just said, for what it's worth, it was kind of a jokey tweet. I said, for what it's worth, the Loch Ness monster doesn't sleep, doesn't live in a swamp. And my God, did it make people angry? I mean, it was just really kind of fascinating. And of course, you know, uh, Seb Gorka came out of his Iron Maiden um, to, you know, uh, say it was the most, something like the ass-hattiest tweet, of course, came from the biggest asset, Jonah Goldberg, or something like that. And I was like, really? Like, I haven't been on Twitter much over the last month, but my guess is there have to have been, even from these sort of, uh, glue-sniffing MAGA idiot world that Gorka's become Pope of, um, there have to have been, even from his perspective, ass-hattier tweets than that. Um, but the number of people who got angry about it, as if like somehow this had crossed the line that I was questioning the, the brilliant rhetoric of, of Donald Trump Jr., um, was really kind of astounding, astounding to me and gave me just a little bit of the whiff of the uh, how much this cult of personality dynasty 
bull has seeped into big chunks of MAGA, big trunk chunks of MAGA world. And that stuff is just going to get worse and nastier. And people are going to, because of the demands of all this, feel compelled to defend things that are indefensible. And, um, uh, you know, I'm, I, I've made my peace with all that a long time ago, but that doesn't mean I still have to enjoy it. And I'm grateful to those of you, including those who, those of you who disagree with me um, about all of or some of this stuff um, for sticking with it. And I really appreciate it. We appreciate your support for the dispatch. And um, um, and we hope you'll stick around till after the election um, when things might, in fact, get better or I don't know, the the living may envy the dead. And with that, I'll see you next time. Sure.